Chapters 23 and 24 of The Girl from Malta by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 23. A Look into the Past. Someone in the drawing room was playing a valse, Love Sorrow, and in after years Ronald could never hear the melody without recalling the scene in the smoking room at Belfield. The eminently masculine characteristics of the room, the steady glow of the lamp, the quiet, cold moonlight outside, and those two figures seated before him. His friend Foster, with his keen eyes fixed on Carmela, the woman he loved seated in the low chair looking like a statue, with her white dress and rigid face, and the mockery of that brilliant valse music sounding fitfully at intervals, while this bitter scene was taking place. "'I will tell you all I know about Leopold Verscoil,' said Carmela in low steady tones, clasping her hands before her though I do not know how I can throw any light upon the subject of his murder, but you can hear and judge for yourselves. When I first met Leopold he was a fascinating man of the world, and I but a simple girl of nineteen. My sister was four years older, and we both fell in love with him. He paid his first addresses to both of us, and I think it was then my sister first began to hate me, though heaven knows she had no cause to do so, for he married her, and left me to make the best of my, as I thought then, broken heart. I have recovered, however, and now that the scales have fallen from my eyes, I see that Leopold Verskoil was not worthy of being loved, and as long as he gratified his own selfish passions, cared nothing for the lives he wrecked. When he married my sister, in the first burst of passion, I wrote that paper, pointing to the table, but it was merely an outcome of girlish anger. I wrote it blindly and did not mean what I said. Indeed, I had forgotten all about it till Mr. Monteith showed it to me just now. Why Leopold Verscoil kept it, I don't know, unless to laugh at my folly and petulance. Well, I went to England after he deceived me and stayed with Sir Mark Trevor. But I must tell you that my sister had another lover, Matteo Vassala. But I thought he loved you, broke in Ronald impetuously. Now, she replied quietly, but seven years ago it was my sister, and he went nearly out of his mind when he found her married. He used to rave to me that he would kill Verscoil, but of course this was merely a fit of madness, the same as came over me when I wrote that letter. He also left Malta and travelled in the East, and before he went I gave him the stiletto for a keepsake. We did not see one another for many years as I lived quietly in England. As for the rest, you know all about my sister's unhappy life how her husband separated from her and went with Elsie MacGregor. Then she found out his infidelity and obtained the divorce. He went to Australia with Elsie MacGregor, whom I heard he had made his wife, and now— She is dead, said Foster slowly. Unlucky woman, replied Carmela calmly. But then everyone who had to do with Leopold Verscoil was unlucky. When my sister obtained her divorce, she asked me to come and live with her in Valletta, and as I was alone in the world, I agreed to do so. But we did not get on well together. She hated me and always said that Leopold Verscoil loved me best. Did she threaten him in any way? asked Foster eagerly. Not in any special way. She raved and stormed, but then she was always doing that. Her molehills were mountains. I bore with her as long as I could till Vassella came home and wanted to marry me. My sister, however, fell in love with him, and longed for that which she had formerly rejected. I did not like my cousin and told him so, but he would not be discouraged, and of course this only made matters worse. 
When the Neptune arrived, I had already taken my passage, and was much surprised when Vassala told me he was leaving Malta also. It was too late to go in another boat, or I would certainly have done so. My sister had a quarrel with me on that day when you, to Monteith, saw us on the Baraka, and I left her and walked home to our lodgings. I never saw her again till we met on board before the boat left. Then she was on board, asked Ronald quickly. Yes, it is no use me denying it. She was on board and appeared to be very excited. She said she had seen Leopold in Valletta that day, but did not tell me he was on board the boat. Then she, together with Vassella, became separated from me in the crowd, and I never saw her again. After the boat sailed, I asked Vassella why she had not said goodbye, and he informed me that the crowd was so great she could not find me and went on shore as the last bell rang. Was Vassella excited when he spoke to you? asked the barrister thoughtfully. No, as cool and quiet as he generally is. When the murder was discovered, did he say anything, make any remark? No, except to mention that a passenger called Mr. Venton had been killed. Did he see the body? said Foster, turning to Ronald. I don't think so, replied Ronald doubtfully. Very few saw the body. But of course he must have known that Verscoil was on board. How so? Because Verscoil was leaning over the side of the ship when the new passengers were coming up, and he must have recognized him, especially when Mrs. Verscoil told him she had seen her former husband. He would then be on the lookout for him. Humph! Yes, no doubt, replied Foster thoughtfully. Can you tell us anything else, Miss Cottoner? Nothing, she answered, rising to her feet, except that Vassala told me my sister had committed the crime and instructed me to deny seeing her on board, which I did. I wrote to you, turning to Monteith. Yes, I understood your letter, he said gently and Carmela flashed a grateful look at him. Vassala said he was the only one who could bring the crime home to my sister, she went on, and made me promise to marry him as the price of his silence. But you will not do so, cried Monteith. What can I do, she said helplessly. I cannot see my sister accused of such a crime when I know it is in my power to prevent it. He won't accuse her, broke in Foster bluntly. Then you think she is innocent, said Carmela joyfully. I don't know that, answered Foster. The whole affair seems to lie between your sister and Vassala. He knows more about this affair than we think. Your sister is in England, is she not? Yes. You have not seen her? No, I refused until she cleared herself of this charge. Do you know why she came here? No. Because the detective we sent out told her that the Marchese wanted to marry you, and she came to stop the marriage. Bah, said Carmela scornfully, she knows I don't care for Vassala. True enough, answered Foster quietly, but she knows Vassala cares for you. What will be the consequence? She will try and make Vassala break off the marriage. If he refuse... Well, they both cried in a breath. My dear young people, said Foster in rather an annoyed tone, don't you see what must happen? Mrs. Verscoil will lose her head and they will quarrel, and when thieves fall out, honest men get their due. But I don't see, began Ronald. Of course you don't, said Gerald with a dry laugh. 
but if that interview has taken place, I'll bet you what you like one of us three will hear from Mrs. Verscoil, for if her temper is what you say, she'll move heaven and earth to stop the marriage. I hope so, said Carmela sadly. Of course she will, replied Foster cheerfully. She will throw away honor, fortune, life itself to obtain her ends if she's so madly in love. When a man starts for the devil, he generally arrives, but when a woman begins, she runs past the devil, and God knows where. Now let us return to the drawing-room. So after this serious interview, they all went back to the drawing-room where they were questioned by everyone about their past. "'We've been in the smoking-room,' said Carmela with a smile, her heart now feeling lighter than it had been for many a day. "'Oh!' said Pat in mock horror. "'Do Maltese ladies smoke?' "'You ought to know, Pat,' retorted Ronald. "'You saw enough of the sex in Valletta.' "'It's my kindly heart,' retorted Pat, who was never at a loss for an answer. "'Sure I don't like to see the poor things cast in such longing glances without responding to them.' Everyone but Mrs. Pellypop laughed at this, and she snorted reprovingly. "'With such views, Mr. Ryan,' said that good lady, "'I hope you will never marry.' "'Why not?' asked Ryan, glancing at Kate. "'My natural inclination for matrimony is strong.' "'I hope your wife will be,' said Ronald with a laugh, "'or she'll never be able to keep you in order.' Foster had established himself by Bell, who did not appear to discourage the advances of the young barrister, though her attention was somewhat distracted by Bubbles, who sat next to her. Seeing this, Pat, who had a fellow feeling for lovers, drew the young man away. Bubbles, he said, was it you that sat for that pear soap picture? Of course, retorted Bubbles, I was the original infant. And indeed he did not look unlike the picture with his beardless face and curly hair. "'Faith,' said Mr. Ryan, "'it's a mighty original infant you are, anyhow.' "'Well, we can't all be Irish,' said Bubbles satirically. "'And a great pity it is you can't,' retorted Pat calmly. "'The finest nation under the sun. "'Did you ever hear anything that touched your heart like Irish music?' "'Sing us some, and then we'll judge,' said Sir Mark, suddenly interposing. So Pat, nothing loath, went to the piano and sang Moore's exquisite song. She is far from the land, in such a pathetic manner that he cast quite a gloom over the company, but restored the joyous tone by dashing into Gary Owen. At the conclusion of Pat's ditties, Ronald and Foster arose to go in spite of a chorus that it was early. But Mrs. Pellypop, on behalf of the clerical party, said it was late. "'Begad, the night's young, and the liquor's plentiful,' said Pat impudently. "'I never touch spirits,' said Mrs. Pellypop majestically. "'More's the pity,' retorted Pat. "'It'd keep the night air out, anyhow.' Mrs. Pellypop deigned no response to this flippancy, but sailed out of the room and shortly afterwards departed with the bishop and her daughter. Ronald and Foster had a glass of whiskey and soda each, while their dog-cart was being brought round, and then went off, Ronald promising to call next day. "'And you won't forget what I told you,' said Carmela as he went. "'No,' replied Ronald, pressing her hand. And mind you let me know when Vassella comes down. They drove off in the moonlight in silence for a time, and then Foster said, What a charming girl is Miss Trevor. Oh, ho, from Monteith. So you've lost your heart. And why not, retorted Foster. 
You are not the only person privileged to lose your heart. Well, I hope your course of true love will run smoother than mine, sighed Ronald. My dear old boy, said Foster, yours will be all right. I've got a presentiment that we shall hear from Mrs. Verscoyle. Do you think she is guilty? asked Ronald. I don't know, but whether or no, she'll not let this marriage take place. But she can't stop it. Can't she? She knows more, perhaps, than we think. How is it Vassala's dagger was found in the dead man's breast? But you don't think, began Ronald when Foster interrupted him. I think nothing, he retorted, whipping up the horse, except that we'll hear from Mrs. Verscoyle. Events proved him a true prophet, for on arrival at the Crown Hotel there was a letter waiting for Ronald, which he opened and read, then passed it to Foster. Didn't I tell you? said the lawyer when he read it. Yes, I believe the end is nearer than we think. The letter said that Mrs. Verscoyle would call on Mr. Monteith at the Crown Hotel, Great Marlow, the next day at three o'clock. So Foster's presentiment was true after all. 24. Mrs. Verscoyle Pays a Visit Next morning, when Ronald awoke, he was very much exercised in his mind as to the reason of Mrs. Verscoyle's visit, and wondered what she wanted to see him about. "'I wonder if she wants me to marry Carmela,' he thought. "'Of course, if she's in love with Vassella, she'll be only too anxious to get Carmela disposed of. She did not commit the murder, or she wouldn't be such a fool as to come to England.' When he finished dressing, Mr. Monteith went downstairs into the dining-room, a pleasant apartment that opened by French windows, on to the quaint old garden with the red brick walls. He lighted a cigarette and walked slowly up and down, waiting for Foster to come to breakfast, and was speedily joined by that gentleman. "'Aren't you hungry, old chap?' asked Gerald as he came into the garden. "'Rather,' retorted Ronald. "'I was wondering when you were going to turn up.' "'Hungry,' said Foster, raising his eyes. And he says he's in love. Oh, Cupid, what a worshipper you've got. Ronald laughed and put his hand on Foster's shoulder. My dear lad, he said quietly, love is the least of my troubles. I want to see Carmela free from all this annoyance and then... And then, repeated Foster as they walked towards the breakfast room. You'll see as true a lover as ever sighed his soul out to a midnight pillow, laughed Ronald. Now come and have some breakfast. I'm starving. What time do you think our friend will arrive? asked Foster as they sat down to the table. Oh, about three, I should imagine, said Ronald, attacking a fried sole with a good appetite. I wonder what the deuce she wants to see me about. Humph, that's a puzzler, said the barrister lightly. But I don't think I'm far wrong when I say it will be all about Vassala. Ronald laughed and went on with his breakfast. He was singularly light-hearted, this young man, because an idea had entered his mind that all would yet be well. If it were not for hope and sanguine expectations, where would our pleasure in the future be? They finished their breakfast and then went out for a walk, saw the house where Shelley lived, on which is a tablet erected by Sir William Clayton, and interviewed the landlady of the hotel into which a portion of the place is turned. "'Don't remember him,' said the landlady when they asked about the poet. I think he was afore my time. And this is fame, ejaculated Foster when they left. Shelley isn't even remembered by name. And he began to spout Horace when Ronald stopped him. Don't be classical, old chap. 
but look at these old parties. The old parties consisted of two old women who informed the gentlemen that they were each eighty years old and had never been out of the town. So Ronald gave them each a shilling and walked away with his friend. I dare say they are much happier than we are, he said, sighing. Better to be a butterfly and enjoy life for a day than a tortoise and sleep out a hundred years, said Foster sapiently. Depend upon it, life is made up of quality, not quantity. They strolled down to Marlow Church and then to that tumble-down heap of cottages immortalized by Fred Walker, the picturesque aspect of which struck Ronald very strongly. I don't know much about pictures, said the Australian frankly, and I haven't the eye of an artist, but I do admire these mellow-tinted roofs so different from the galvanized tin of the colonies. Then they went across the bridge, saw the river full of boats with their light-hearted occupants, had a drink at the Angler's Hotel, and looked out over the foaming waters of the weir, murmuring like the humming of bees, and ultimately went back to the Crown Hotel, up the long street, with the old little shops on either side. After they had some luncheon, consisting of bread and cheese and beer, they sat in the dining-room in a kind of somnolent state, smoking steadily until a waiter came and said that a lady had called to see them. "'Why, what's the time?' asked Ronald, sleepily tumbling to his feet. Three o'clock, sir,' returned the waiter. "'The devil!' ejaculated Ronald. "'I say, old boy, here's Mrs. Verscoyle.' "'Right you are,' answered Foster, awake and alert at once. "'I'm coming. Where is the lady?' "'In the sitting-room upstairs, sir,' replied the waiter. They went upstairs to the sitting-room and found a lady closely veiled waiting for them. She arose when they entered and looked from one to the other in a doubtful way. "'Mr. Monteith,' she asked. "'I have the honour to bear that name,' replied Ronald, stepping forward. "'You are Mrs. Verscoyle?' The lady bowed and threw back her veil, disclosing a countenance so like Carmela's that Ronald was startled for a moment. "'You will wonder what I have come about,' said Mrs. Verscoyle, resuming her seat. "'So I may as well tell you at once. "'It is to stop my sister's marriage with the Marchese Vassella.' Gerald glanced at Ronald, and as their eyes met, the same thought was in their minds. "'Jealousy.' "'But why do you come to us?' said Ronald politely. "'We cannot stop the marriage.' "'How he fervently wished he could.' "'Yes, you can,' she replied quietly. You are looking for the murderer of my husband. Both the young men stared. What was she going to say? My sister and I are not very good friends, said Mrs. Verscoyle, but I don't want to see her married to a man guilty of a crime. Guilty of a crime? cried Ronald, springing to his feet. You don't mean to say that Vassella is the murderer of Leopold Verscoyle, she said. Yes, I swear it. Ronald sat down again and looked helplessly at Foster, who came to his aid. "'This is a very serious charge you make, madam,' said Foster gravely. "'Are you sure?' She sprang to her feet in a fury. "'Sure?' she hissed viciously. "'Of course I am sure. You have been looking for the murderer of my husband, and I tell you the man, then you doubt my word. Bah!' Foster was quite unmoved by her violence. I always presume a man's innocent till he is proved guilty, he said quietly, so that must be my excuse. But are you sure Vassella committed this crime? I will tell you all about it, said Mrs. Verscoyle, sitting down again. When I married Mr. Verscoyle, my cousin Matteo was in love with me. So your sister said, 
interposed Ronald gravely. He swore he would kill Leopold Verskoyle if he got the chance, and he has kept his word. I was on board and saw him. Saw him commit the crime. Not so much as that, she replied, but I will explain. I met my husband in Valletta and went on board to see him. You denied doing so in your letter to Vassella, said Foster. Ah, he showed you that. It was to save him I wrote it. I am the only witness who could prove him guilty, and I said I was not on board, so in the case of his being found out, I would not have to appear against him. How was the crime committed? asked Ronald. I saw my husband on board, but did not speak to him. I heard him mention the number of his cabin to you, and then leave. Matteo Vassala, who was beside me, followed him. And you? I remained where I was, but I did not think that Matteo was going to commit a crime, or I would have gone with him. When did you see Vassala again? I went to my husband's cabin, and met Vassala coming out. He tried to prevent me from going in, but I entered, and saw my husband dead, with Matteo's stiletto in his breast. Matteo implored me to be silent, and I obeyed. I went on shore at once, and wrote the letter you saw. I would have kept silent still, only I heard that he was going to marry my sister and determined to save her. You say Vassala's stiletto was in poor Verscoil's breast, said Foster quietly, fixing his keen eyes on her face. Will you kindly describe the weapon? An ordinary stiletto, she replied, with a curiously carved ivory handle, representing the head of Bacchus surrounded with wreaths of grapes and vine leaves. Yes, that is the description of the weapon, said Foster. But how do you know it was Vassella's? Because my sister told me she had given it to him. Ronald started and would have spoken as he remembered Carmela had said the same thing, but Foster stopped him. You say, observed the barrister smoothly, that Miss Cottoner gave your cousin the stiletto. May I ask when? Oh, six or seven years ago. And it has been in Vassella's possession ever since? Yes, defiantly. Who else could have it? Foster made no answer, so Ronald took up the conversation. What motive had Vassella for committing this crime? He asked in a puzzled tone. He would not have nourished revenge all these years. Ah, you don't know a Maltese gentleman, said Mrs. Verscoyle. He never forgets an insult. My husband insulted him seven years ago, and he swore he would kill him. It is like the Corsican vendetta with us. Are you prepared to make this statement in a court of law? asked Foster, eyeing her keenly. Yes, I will swear to it on the cross. Vassella will have to be arrested. Of course, she retorted defiantly. I want him to be arrested. For the murder of your husband at Valletta? Yes. Good. We will go up to London tonight and take out a warrant. The sooner the better, she said vindictively. Will you let me offer you some refreshment? said Ronald as he arose to leave the room. Yes, send me a glass of brandy and soda, she replied. I feel worn out. Ronald bowed and then went out with Foster to see after their things. They sent up the drink to Mrs. Verscoil, and then Ronald wrote a letter to Carmela, telling her he was going up to London on business, but did not mention what. Foster paid the bill, got their dressing bags, and in a few minutes they were on their way to the station. While Foster was getting the tickets, Mrs. Verscoil being on the platform, Ronald took the opportunity to ask his friend a question. Do you think her story is true? 
he asked. If it isn't, Vassella can easily clear himself, was the ambiguous reply. End of chapters 23 and 24